Methamphetamine abuse is exploding across rural America. So we're talking today about a scourge that is going across this country, which is called crystal meth. There were times that I went to bed starving to death. I mean, there were literally nights I would cry myself to sleep because I was so hungry. I took the 9mm and stuck it in my mouth and fired. These are the stories of those who had a relationship with one of the most addictive drugs ever known to law enforcement, methamphetamine. Known on the streets as meth, crystal, rock, jib, crank, ice, and many other names, it's a drug that has paved a road of devastation in the millions of dollars and in lives. Meth is cheaper, it's pure, it's widely available, and is devastating people. Transcribed from 33 interviews, professor and author Dr. Rashi Shukla delved into the meth culture in Oklahoma for an exhausting and arduous four years. I really was not prepared for what I was getting into, and the, from the very first interview, I knew that I didn't know very much. Hi, I'm your host, Dr. David Nelson, a professor at the University of Central Oklahoma in the Department of Mass Communication. The stories in the podcast can be difficult to listen to, but have a raw essence to them that provide a look into the lives of meth addicts, dealers, and manufacturers. Welcome to episode two of the podcast, The 33. In this episode, we will discuss Evan, one of the 33 individuals that were interviewed by Dr. Shukla, who wrote the book, Methamphetamine, A Love Story. Now, Dr. Rashi Shukla is a professor of criminal justice at the University of Central Oklahoma and author of the book of discussion. And it was, again, published by the University of California Press. More than a million dollars worth of meth and cocaine off the streets. All right, here we go. Oh, there's someone right there. There's someone right there. Close the police! Open the door! Get the dog. Just get it open. If the goal of the war on drugs is to eliminate drugs from the United States, we've lost it, and we lost a long time ago. I mean, meth is king in Tulsa. Dr. Shukla, we've had a couple of highly publicized uh, meth lab busts here in the state of Oklahoma, one of them in my hometown of uh, Lawton, Oklahoma. And uh, if anybody knows any of the uh, history or statistics related to the state of Oklahoma, uh, meth labs, particularly in Tulsa, uh, are very problematic. And the recent news coverage of at least of these two major meth lab busts that uh, I mentioned, there's likely more going on than is reported and you do have, for example, uh, a story that you can share regarding a uh, Manford bust here in Oklahoma. Um, yes, in 2019, I was putting together a photo exhibit with retired agent Dub Turner on Oklahoma Meth Labs, and we did it here at the university. And right as I was getting ready to finalize the photo exhibit for a July opening, there was a news article that broke that said that Manford, Oklahoma, had found a couple hundred meth labs in a home. Prosecutors filed charges against three people arrested following a meth bust in Manford Tuesday, where officers say they found more than 200 pot bottles used to make meth. All three now face misdemeanor charges. Well, up until that point, the story that everyone was telling, basically once we had made, put restrictions on pseudoephedrine and made it harder to get the precursor chemicals, most of the meth manufacturing left locally and started moved to Mexico. So most of the meth that was coming into the state at that time 
was actually coming from abroad. Well, so when this news article broke in 2019, it really caught my eye because it seemed to be the missing piece of the puzzle of this 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 meth lab story that we actually called Oklahoma Meth Lab's Decades of Chaos. And so I actually contacted Chief Lucky Miller. This is the largest amount of meth labs that I've seen in one location in 21 years that I've been doing this. Chief Miller was the police chief who helped find that house that had these meth labs. And when we say meth labs, this isn't like the big old school P2P labs that took a whole room. We're talking about a bottle, the shake and bake meth labs. So it wasn't like in the 80s where you had a, a whole house that might be used to cook meth. Rather, this was a single home in a community that was very clean cut. The lawn was mowed. And, you know, I didn't know that till I went out there, but I called Chief Lucky Miller and said, you know, you found these meth labs while everybody is saying there's no more in the state. Do you mind if I come down and meet you? I went down and met Chief Lucky Miller and Detective Michael Neely. They spent about an hour and a half talking to me and my colleague, Dr. Melissa Inglis, and then we got in the car and we went to visit his house. And it's really one thing to read a newspaper article. It's another thing to actually be able to go to the house. Investigators say it's hard to imagine that husband and wife, Andrew and Melissa Kaywood, and their 20-something-year-old son, Nicholas, were living in the home. And see, for example, one of those giant, you know, water jugs, those five-gallon jugs. There's, I have a photo where there's one of those jugs and it's full of old lighters. That you would see, you know, look in the windows and it's kind of looking kind of like a house that's lived in with like the cereal boxes on the counters, but then kind of like a hoarder house. And so it was really a once in a lifetime experience to be able to go with this police chief and his main detective and see this home. And it was really one of the highlights of my career. And I asked Chief Miller, you know, asked him questions like, what's it like to go through life being called lucky? And what's it like to, you know, how did you find this? And he had been trained years before. And so it actually had taken him three years of surveillance to find this. And one day, the people that lived in that home had put out the trash. And that's how he caught him. But he was persistent and stayed on this house for three years. Well, the photo exhibit came out in July. And by November, uh, Chief Lucky Miller and Detective Neely went to a conference in Florida. And I received a call. And I don't even remember who called me. Officer Michael Neely appeared before a Florida judge wearing a green and white jumpsuit. This Hilton Hotel in Pensacola Beach now quiet, but on Sunday night it was swarming with deputies after Manford Police Chief Lucky Miller was found dead. Officer Michael Neely accused of killing him. Um, he actually got sentenced to life in prison, I believe, in April of this year. And so that was really one of, I mean, it was very hard for me to process that. I had already, I thought I had, I was prepared for the darkness of meth. You know, like we're going to talk about Evan today. Mm -hmm. He's the one who started the book and, you know, he's the one who had shot himself in the head to stop using meth. So I kind of felt like I knew what I needed to know, but that added a whole nother layer of darkness and kind of trauma that goes with it. But I actually have this interview between these two men that ended in a tragedy for actually both of them. And at the time of my study and at the time that I met them, they were really both my heroes. We are going to talk about Evan because Evan was uh, one of the first people you interviewed. And the reason we're talking about meth labs is because Evan was one of your first cooks that uh, you interviewed. And uh, he was uh, roughly about 32 years old, if I remember correctly, that you mentioned in your book. He was married and uh, one of your first cooks you interviewed and found power in selling meth and in some ways so seducing 
that he found it more important than any other thing in his life. It was like a love story for me because I liked it more than anything else. Myself, more than anybody else, more than my children, more than my wife, more than my job, more than my home, more than my possessions. What can you tell us about Evan as far as describing him alone? You mentioned to me he was very intense. When we finally got to sit down and be comfortable, because remember, we had been seated at a, at a restaurant before, and then they asked us to leave. And when we finally got seated, you know, the restaurants have those napkin holders, those metal napkin holders where you pull the napkins from the side. Well, I had set my tape recorder on top of that, and there's a microphone. And Evan literally leaned over the table, and for example, if this would be the, the napkin holder, he leaned over it like this the whole time and talked very methodically and slowly. And again, I wasn't really sure why he was doing that, but because he had almost died trying to get away from this drug, it was very important to him that every word of his story be captured. And that's one of the, the tragedies of even taking you know, a book and cutting all these words out of it or taking an interview and condensing it into you know, 30 minutes is we're talking about for Evan alone, I have 51 pages of transcription. You know, and so he wanted to really be intense. And and it was when he took off his hat and he told me about shooting himself in the head. And again, I've never met anyone who shot themselves in the head. And I don't even know whether to believe it when someone does. But then when he opens his mouth and he shows you this little tiny like black blue mark, you know, I didn't look that closely because I'd never been in that situation. But he opened his mouth and he shows you where the gunshot was. And then he takes off his hat and he starts pressing his head, which is all deshaped, to show you where they had to put his head back together. And I shot the, the top of my head off. And uh, this is a metal plate. And this is a metal plate. And this is a metal plate. So what can you recall from your interview with Evan regarding that evening when he shot himself? Well, he actually mentions the specific date. And he talked about the fact that he couldn't stop using it. He couldn't stop, you know, he couldn't get out of it and he got depressed. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, if you've ever been in darkness, you come to understand is when somebody's in darkness, they really can't see light anymore. And Evan actually gave me the quote that said, I couldn't see the good anymore. I couldn't see it. I had a gun, I had a pistol because I didn't want anyone trying to rob me or come in my home or hurt me and my family. And then I started having thoughts of suicide. And he mentions this to his wife and his wife just thinks he's getting attention and just like, oh, shut up. And he said, I was serious. I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know if I could, I didn't feel like I could talk to anybody. I didn't feel like I had any friends anymore, only customers. Mm. And so he mentions himself that he, in his perspective, was more addicted than anyone else. And it got so bad that friends of his who were also in the world stopped coming around him. So again, we talk about these levels or these layers of immersion in the lifestyle. When you're involved with methamphetamine and the people that are also involved in methamphetamine are starting to stay, with, stay away from you, that's a whole nother thing. Um, and he mentions the date, I changed the date to protect his identity. I took a nine millimeter, put it in my mouth and fired it. And I shot the top of my head off. And then he took off his hat and started to show us the metal plate. And uh, this is a metal plate. And this is a metal plate. And this is a metal plate. And so is this. 
and this is where they don't come together. And if you look at the roof of my mouth, there's a very small hole from the bullet. And they had to remove a third. That's what happened to my teeth. The recoil when it went into my mouth. They had to remove a third of my brain from bone splinters. And I was in the hospital for almost six months. And I wasn't supposed to live. And I, I, I lived. You know, I was so caught off guard because I'm on, you know, page 19 of my transcript at this point. And this was the first time I heard anything like this. So I didn't even have the the brain power to be like, tell me about more about that day and where the gun came from. And there's so many questions that were left unasked. And in some cases, like with the sex questions, they got answered. But in other cases, like with this, I was so shocked in the moment that it's hard to, I don't know if people have done interviews with people on something they don't know a lot about, but it's hard to, in the moment, to respond to everything when this information is being, you know, for lack of a better word, when you're talking about gunshots, fired at you so quickly. You know, and Evan had also talked about being in a home where there was drug violence and that there had been an altercation and basically that one person in that room shot another person and they just took that person and the person disappeared. I could do whatever I had to do to get it. I would do it. I could not stop doing it. All the money that you get from it, it all goes back into it. So you really don't get anything out of it. Um, Evan was my third interview and he was my first cook cook. And the reason I start the book with him is not only because of the impact of his story. You know, I don't know if anybody's ever met somebody who has actually shot themselves in the head and lived. But it's a very surreal experience. And as I mentioned before in our first episode, I really wasn't prepared for what I was going into. And so, you know, and he didn't mention the shooting until the very end of the interview. And so it really caught me off guard. But one of the reasons that I started the book with him is not only was he the, the first cook cook, and he taught me things, like you said, about the motives and the power and the sex and the, the addiction that, that accompanies all of this. And it's not just an addiction to the drug. It's an addiction to this whole lifestyle and the power that goes along with this lifestyle. He was also the first one that made me understand as an outsider the difference between a cold cook and a hot cook. Like, I had never heard about that. I just thought there's meth cooking and then there's not. Well, cold cooking was the process where you cook meth, for example, by the combining of chemicals like anhydrous ammonia, the farm fertilizer. Whereas hot cooking, you might use something like the ephedrine and the, the you know, whatever the chemicals are. I'd have to, like, go back and look at my notes. I had to basically become uh, versed in chemistry. All right, good looking. Let's get cooking. Okay, to get started, we'll need the following chemicals. Ephedrine or pseudoephedrine, red phosphorus, iodine crystals, hydrochloric, sulfuric, or muriatic acid, sodium hydroxide, and a few solvents like methanol, ether, acetone, or coma fuel. The cook, as they say, is usually done in six user-friendly stages. Stage one. And one of the key things about Evan was we had met in a 
restaurant about 45 minutes outside of Oklahoma City. So now I meet this guy. He says he's a cook cook. And we're getting ready to start this interview. Well, apparently the restaurant we had had an issue with us having a tape recorder on the table. So they asked us to leave. So that was the first time that I had to move locations with somebody who was showing up. And so I was, I don't live in that town 45 minutes away. So I wasn't sure where we needed to go. He suggested a restaurant and the whole time I wondered whether he would actually show up. Because one of the things I've learned in this, and I've only had to change locations a few times when somebody had already met me, is when you say, I'm going to meet you in point A, and you move to point B, then they start to think you might be a cop or a narc, you know, because they already don't know who you are, and they're trusting you with this. So I didn't know if I was going to lose Evan at any point, but he met me. We ended up going to this very, you know, busy buffet in this town, and we sat in this table surrounded by people that were eating their food. And Evan was the one who would actually take sugar packets when he wanted to show me what like a quarter gram of meth was. He would open the sugar packets, he would put them on the table. He would pour the sugar packets in the spoon. He would take like a, like a card of some kind and line up the sugar packets to show me. And remember, this is happening while people around us are eating their, their meals. And so he always stood out as one of the most, you know, the one I talked about first, which is why he made it to the front of the book. And he's also the one that, that introduced us to this idea of the illusion that we alluded to in the last one. So Evan was key. He was a critical player in this story, and he really framed a lot of what followed. You're listening to episode two of the podcast, The 33, Methamphetamine, a love story, a book written by my guest, Dr. Rashi Shukla. I should actually identify you as my co-host because this is going to be a long-term podcast. Uh, She's a professor of criminal justice at the University of Central Oklahoma. I'm your host, Dr. David Nelson, professor of mass communication at the University of Central Oklahoma. Officer Kellogg from the D.A.R.E. program. He's going to be talking to you today about the dangers of substance abuse. Some cases, some of the 33 were introduced to other drugs as early as seven, eight years of age. Uh, so Evan does kind of fall in that category with the majority of the 33. Yeah, Evan is interesting because it's 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 interesting how when you ask somebody a question like, you know, tell me about your family and they start saying one thing, but as they become comfortable and they start thinking about it, more details come out. So Evan was unique in that he had two parents that had been married to each other the entire time. Mm-hmm. Now they eventually got divorced, but his mother came from a family where there was no crime or drugs. Um, his father himself had 14 DUIs. His parents used alcohol and marijuana. And at that time, marijuana was completely illegal. You know, today we see recreational marijuana and we see medical marijuana in different states, you know, whereas federally it's still illegal. But at that time, marijuana was just as illegal as, you know, crack was or as cocaine was at the time. And so his parents used regularly pretty much every day. And unlike some of the people that I had interviewed when I was doing my dissertation, you know, or my graduate studies on marijuana, his parents used it openly in front of him. So it wasn't hidden. And he actually talked about in his interviews about, you know, I don't know what it would have been like if my parents hadn't done that. I don't know, you know. I think back a lot. I wonder if I would have made the same choices if that hadn't been what I was normal to me. Because I 
think maybe if you grew up in a home where drug use was really frowned on, and you know that's a no-no, don't do that ever, I think uh, maybe I would have made some different choices. But his dad had 14 DUIs. He thinks he had been in prison three times, though he had never gone to the pen penitentiary while Evan was growing up. Um, the father had two brothers, so these would be uncles now, who were in penitentiary for beating women. Mm. Um, Evan's mother uh, was beat by the father, but they never called the police because she was afraid. So even though he was in this world where the only drugs being used were marijuana and alcohol, you know, he was seeing things that were a little um, abnormal. And there are people in the book who didn't have any of that. So he did come from this kind of family. Interestingly enough, Evan and his mother both still use marijuana, and he described her as someone who looks like a businesswoman and that you wouldn't be able to see. You know, and it's just interesting. He made the comment that he's not in contact with his father. He doesn't know how to contact his father, but he said, my father might know how to contact me. But he actually made the comment, I don't even know if I would know if he passed away or not. My own mother, who listened to episode one with me, passed away last Tuesday very unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of shocking for me to think about how you might not even know where a parent is and you what it's like to go through the world where you wouldn't know if your parent passed away. Oh, oh, I know a lot of people. I'm not a rat. There's a, there's a code of honor among criminals. Um, the county district attorney had tried to get him to serve as a narc at one point, and he talked about the fact that, that there's a code of honor among criminals, and that that was, that was a line he wasn't willing to cross. Um, it means that you don't, you would never say anything to a law agencies about any illegal activities that anybody else was ever involved in. And, and your only answer is, I don't know. I don't know anything. I don't know anybody. I didn't see anything. Dr. Shukla, Evan goes on to add that when he first tried meth, he didn't like the after effects and actually contemplated not never doing it again. Yes, immediately I wanted more. And I stayed up all night and I didn't have any more. And I felt horrible the next day. I hadn't slept, I hadn't eaten. I just wanted to lay there. I felt sick. Right, he pursued it though because a friend came to him and said, listen, you know, yes, there's after effects. You felt like crap after taking it for the first time, but what you need to do is do it again in the morning. Correct. And uh, you would feel better. Well, lo and behold, he did. <laughs> and then he tried it again in the morning and he did it again and so on. Later found himself chasing it daily just to avoid feeling sick was killing me. It was, it was killing me. I couldn't stop doing it. And what's, you know, ab not abnormal is that him and that acquaintance had drank alcohol and smoked marijuana together. So, you know, you think about, people talk about these gateway things and what does that mean? And really in this world, at that time at least, it meant, you know, entrance of one drug links you to people that have connections to the other. And he said within a month, he starts using it daily. And he said it's the best thing he'd ever done and that even if he didn't do anything else, he was fine with that. So his pattern of meth, once he started it and once he kind of, you know, got into this habit where he would start using it, you know, he really kind of, you know, fell in love with it. And, you know, the title of the book's Methamphetamine, A Love Story. I struggle with that because 
My original title was Methamphetamine Journey Through Darkness. I don't want it to appear seductive because it's destructive. But he really talked about it, and he talked about it that meth was different for him than any other drug. You know, he said it took over his whole life and that he would do anything and whatever to get what he wants. And that was not only something that happened to him, but that was something that attracted him to it because that would then give him the power once he started cooking to get other people to do anything. And we have to make a note here, too. We did have one listener who commented that there are people uh, who may use meth on a daily basis, but still function, own homes, have children, uh, have marriages. But we do want to focus on the 33 you interviewed. These are 33 people who tried meth and became addicted, and it destroyed their lives. I, too, have a personal story in which my ex-wife, who became addicted to meth, and it destroyed our marriage, and she was incarcerated, and that's how she became clean, but it destroyed her life, destroyed her reputation, destroyed her opportunity to work, and it destroyed relationships. So my experience, of course, is going to come from that perspective, even though there may be some who will listen to this podcast and think that trying it and because, quote unquote, it works right. is not always necessarily the case that the majority of people who try it and then find themselves trying it again and again and again will find most of them will find themselves in a spiral downward and become addicted and lose jobs. And of course, as I said, relationships and things of that nature. So that's my experience with it. And, you know, one of the things I'll just add in there real quick is, you know, I have people that we'll probably talk about later in future episodes that maybe used it functionally for 20 years where they had the job, they had their kids, they made straight A's in college, they ran businesses. And I I don't remember off the top of my head the name of, I think it might have been Vanessa, but I'd have to go back and look. But she lived a successful life with it until she didn't. You know, so sometimes, I mean, there is truth to the fact that people can use any drug in a controlled or non-controlled manner. And there's academic literature on that. But, you know, it may be that if you eventually stay with it and progress long enough and let it take over your life, that at some point, you know, you may get to the point where you're like these 33. But there were people even in my in my 33 that used functionally for a long time before they didn't. I got so... uh addicted to it that it just took over everything else I don't feel like I'm a liar or a thief or violent or untrustworthy or dishonest but I was dead come on let's talk about sex baby One thing that definitely stands out is the idea of sex. Now, sex seems to be one area that most agree, and you had several pages on this, and for the most part, most say it was the most pleasurable and intense sex they've ever had when on meth, and it seems to be a very powerful attraction. Even my ex-wife, who became addicted to meth, said 
it made sex uh, that more enjoyable. Uh, but it wasn't with me. <laughs> All right. So I'll just keep it there. Um, <laughs> a little side note. But what can you say about uh, this idea of sex and the intense uh, feeling that comes with it uh, that you're 33, I've told you, and particularly in this case, since we're talking about Evan? The sex is incredible. It's like, I don't know. It adds something to it. It's something primal. I don't know. It's very intense. Evan mentioned the sex and I didn't have any questions about sex, but sex came up in many of the interviews, particularly with men, um, people would do, you know, people that are high and that are desperate will often do sometimes even more deviant things than they might do if they're other, otherwise not. And, you know, without getting too much into that today, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of deviance. Like people that respond to meth labs will tell you they often see a lot of pornography. Meth hits really fast and it levels off very quickly. So many people do can do more and more of it to keep that dopamine hit going. It fuels the libido. But on the counter side of it, some of these people that escaped the lifestyle and that came to interview me after getting out of it would talk about the fact that they could no longer have sex. You know, and again, I don't know the literature on this or anything, but they would come up and say, you know, yes, it was the best sex I ever had, but I can't do that anymore. And so I don't know biologically or chemically or physiologically what it is that accounts for that but we had two sides we had those people who talked about it while they were high and what they did you know and those who didn't now this is something that's not related to the 33 but I one of the last interviews I did in 2019 and it wasn't even part of this project it was just this guy who called me and said I want to do an interview with you he's actually serving time in federal prison but he wanted to tell a story and he had told me, and this is really weird to say, and I'm, whatever, my, I mean, my mom's not going to listen to it now, so it is what it is, but he talked about that there was a time that he stood in his kitchen, and he was shooting up, and in his kitchen naked, he had an orgasm, mm. just by shooting up, mm. and again, as a young, as a female, now I'm not young anymore, but as a female scholar, that kind of made me feel uncomfortable, but it's also the truth. There are only three ways out. You quit, you die, or you go to jail. You've listened to episode two of the podcast, The 33, based on the book Methamphetamine, a love story written by co-host Dr. Rashi Shukla, professor of criminal justice at the University of Central Oklahoma. I'm your host and producer, Dr. David Nelson, professor of mass communication at the University of Central Oklahoma. In the next episode, we will specifically talk about Katie, another one of the 33 in Dr. Shukla's book. And we just wrapped up Evan, and I hope you join us next episode, episode number three, as we look into the darkness of those who battled with their addiction to meth. Special thanks going out to the Department of Mass Communication on the campus of University of Central Oklahoma and the staff for preparing the podcasting room. Also, thanks to bensound.com, KFOR-TV, and KJHR-TV in Tulsa.